There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. Welcome to the Fear Me Out podcast. Um, I just want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I want to make sure that everybody knows how much Kim and I appreciate uh, everybody's willingness to participate in our world and to um, tune in on a regular basis. I want to talk a little bit about how this podcast today came into existence. Um, uh, this coming weekend, we're doing a we're dropping a podcast on sexual abuse, and Kim and I have been talking a lot about. Well, when uh, this airs, it's going to be the week prior. Oh, the week prior. Sorry. Yeah, but uh, this is a series on sexual abuse. Right. Yes. What Kim and I have been trying to figure out is, I wonder where we could find someone who would have the courage to come and talk about their experience growing up being sexually abused and how it's affected their life and in all the different ways that that kind of trauma affects a person. And um, I met a woman, I would say, 30 years ago. Uh, she was one of the first people that I worked with that was really horribly abused as a child. And I hadn't seen her in about five years or so, except maybe uh, in passing. Four. And a couple of weeks ago, she was in my mind, and I just could not stop thinking about her. And it, it, I mean, for two or three days, I thought, wow, I got to get a hold of this woman. I haven't thought about her forever. And the evening uh, that I made that decision to get a hold of her, she actually texted me before I had a chance to do that and said, I had a dream about you last night. I thought, wow, this is... Uh, uh, part of the way the universe works. And um, so she was kind enough to meet me at the park the following morning, and we caught up, which was really very lovely. And um, just out of the blue, she said to me, it's time. And I said, well, it's time for what? She said, it's time for me to talk about my story because I really want to help people that have had similar experiences to mine have some hope and feel like there's a way forward in their lives. And I thought, well, okay, I got the, I got the place for you. Uh, why don't you come on our podcast? We've been looking for someone. And I think that you said, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> I said, well. <laughs> no, I'm eager to get it out. I think I said, I'll do it. <laughs> I think that's wild. Uh, and so here we are. I want to introduce Anne, who is one of my favorite people in the world and has more courage than anybody could ever imagine to face what it is she's had to deal with in the course of her life. And uh, she's been gracious enough to come here and uh, talk about her experience. And so I'm going to turn it over to you, Ann. So I, I think probably the best way to get started is, is, uh, is talk about what happened to you and when it started. Hmm. Uh, my mother uh, had a thing for pedophiles. Her first husband... Uh, was abused his future stepchildren. They were only married for a couple of years, and they had one daughter. Um, then she married again briefly to my father, and then she married my stepfather, 
who then she stayed married to for like 20 something years and he was the perpetrator in my in my family um he we were living in los angeles and i was pretty little and he i i remembered in one of my sessions with dana that he had been in the house from the time i was like two two and a half um and i was i i was like little and i was okay with it but then i remembered also in another session that he was very uh sort of threatening presence in our house he would follow me into the bathroom he would he was just looking back on a really creepy guy but he was also the father figure in my house um, from the time I was two. So, and then they had another daughter, my little sister, who is uh, four years younger than me. And right about the time she was born, we all moved, packed up and moved to Santa Barbara. Um, I think when I was probably about six and a half or six, he started coming into my bedroom. They didn't sleep together. He slept down the hall in a pull-out bed in the den um, so he had free run of the house and could come and go as he pleased. And my mother, strangely, had this whole intercom system that she had installed in our house. So she could, she said, so she could listen and if anything happened. But <laughs> there were lots of stuff happening that obviously she must have heard and paid no attention to. Uh, so he started coming into my room and sitting on the bed for a long time, I remember he just sat on the bed, and I would wake up and see him sitting on the end of the bed. And after a while, I don't remember exactly when, he started um, moving closer to me and pulling the covers down and pulling my nightgown up. And I just remember a lot of oral sex. And my little sister was in the bed next to me. And I know there was a part of me, and it became more conscious as I got older that was just trying to protect her and I was I was the bed closest to the door and I thought if he can have me he'll leave Tina alone and then she was his daughter so I thought maybe he you know like will go after the stepkids but not his own daughter to this day I'm not really sure if anything ever happened between the two of them she's um, pretty much a mess at this at this point, and she has some memories that she doesn't know how to deal with, but I still, I don't know if I'll ever know for sure. And there was a couple year age difference between you two? Four years. Four years, okay. So you were seven at the time it started, and, and she was, she was like three. three, okay. And she was born right before we moved to Santa Barbara, so she was a baby when we moved. Um, let's see. That went on for a while, and it got more and more... You know, pretty soon he was having me give him hand jobs, and I just did whatever he wanted me to do. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm going to ask maybe the obvious question here. I don't know if a seven-year-old at that point, seven or eight-year-old knows what they're doing is wrong, but did you have a feeling that this was not what you were supposed to be doing? And and. What were you actually feeling? Were you horrified, sick to your stomach, or? Uh, no. Uh, there was a part of me that liked it. Okay. And later on, I was so ashamed of that because sometimes it was very pleasurable before it got more and more. But it got, at the end, it, got, it was really 
terrible. And I thought, you know, this is terrible. And I was scared most of the time. Did he threaten you with violence if you didn't partake in that? Not that I recall. He threatened me finally one night. I think I was about to turn eight or I was eight. And he came into the room and he was, the lights were on, everybody was up and he was just quote unquote saying goodnight. And he was sitting on the side of the bed and I said, I, for the first time, I said, why, what's going on that you're coming into the room in the middle of the night? What's, what's up with that? And I don't think I was, I wasn't angry or upset. I was just like finally saying something, got old enough to say something. And he went nuts. He started yelling at me and saying, that's a horrible thing. You're a horrible, dirty, awful girl. I would never do anything like that. And if you ever say anything to anybody, I will send you away to a big white hospital with no windows and you will never see your family again and you will never see your sisters or your mother again. And, you know, you're a disgusting, horrible girl. And I absolutely believed him. I thought I was going to be sent away. I was terror-stricken. So... Up to that point, though, before you got threatened, you had never had a conversation or, or outed him to your mother, or was your father, your biological father, I- involved in your life at that point at all? No, no I okay. had ever had very little to do with my biological father, and I didn't like him. Even from a very young age, I just didn't like the guy. Your biological my father. My biological okay. father. And then he moved away when I was like seven. He moved to Florida and then to the South. Okay. You know, So he wasn't, but... I found out, go ahead. I was going to say, so now you've had this threat that if you out him, he's going to send you away. Yeah, I'm going to be sent away and that I'm a disgusting, horrible person and I can't tell anybody that. So, you know, and I just at that point, I think I started blocking it out as much as I could. Um, I think by the time I was in fourth grade, by the time I was nine, I didn't remember anything. And the frequency of these events was nightly or... I'm not really okay. sure. It was definitely several times a week, but I can't, I can't say whether it was every night. You it weren't was a counting. Lot. Do you remember at what point it turned to intercourse? I was probably getting close to the time I said something to him. Oh, okay. Um, so about eight years old, something yeah, like that? Yeah, probably about eight years old. Maybe younger. I don't know. Um, I remember... I, I still, to this day, have blocked all of that out. And did the abuse always take place at night and in your bedroom? In the middle of the night, in the bedroom. And, and you, you shared a bedroom with your with half-sister? With sister, yeah. Okay. And, and again, we're getting the cart before the horse, but, but she doesn't remember suffering from that abuse or witnessing you suffering from that abuse that she has ever admitted to you. She doesn't. She says she doesn't. She, did a, she had a therapist who... I don't know, was particularly competent, who she worked with for a long time. And she said she definitely remembers feeling something really wrong in the room, but she doesn't remember, and she remembers being scared. So you're going through adolescence and and suffering from sexual abuse multiple times a week. How How did that change the way you lived as an eight or nine year old in the world or in your mind was just this normal that you thought that you had a normal upbringing despite what was happening to you 
Or, or did you act out in school, do well in school, or? Uh, it felt really normal until he stopped. You know, it was certainly very scary at night, but in the morning I would get up and I would go to school, and I I don't remember being an uncontented kid at, until that point. I liked my teachers. I, you know, I, I think I just made up my mind that I was going to be okay in the daytime. I, I really don't know how I coped, to tell you the truth, up until then. Did you confide at all in any of your close girlfriends or, or mm. friends at all? At all? No. So nobody at all knew. Nobody what was knew, and, and, except and, I'm. I'm convinced my mother knew. But and, and the reason why you didn't say anything to your friends, do you do you remember? I don't remember exactly, but I'm just assuming it's because he told me I, that I was okay. a terrible, horrible, disgusting girl, and you you know not going to go around telling people the, what I was doing. I really think I later on I really felt like I was a participant. I felt guilty. I felt. Um, you know that I had, I had participated in this. Therefore, I deserved it, and I was part of this whole thing. And you know, I don't feel that way anymore. But for years and years, I felt that way. So obviously, a ton of shame. Yeah, it was terrible. And I felt. I remember feeling when I first started seeing you, um, when you had a. I joined the group that you had that Kim later was a part of, and I was so ashamed. I remember just feeling. Like, how can I talk about this? And, you know, I, yeah. I don't feel shame anymore, but I definitely did for forever. And this went on for how many years? Until I was getting probably eight. I think I had turned nine. Okay. And then that was the end of it. And do you have any idea what made him stop? When I said something to him. Oh, so it actually, even though he threatened you and told you he was going to send you away... That was it. It actually kind of stopped after that. Stopped. What did you say to him? I well, I like I said, I said, "What's going on? And why are you coming into my room?" And you know, I not in an angry way, but just a you know, I guess I just he got old enough that I finally said something. So in his mind, he was thinking, "Okay, you're figuring this out, and my the gig is up." Right. And my older sister told me later that he had molested her once or twice, although it may have been more, and she just didn't. And how much older is she than you? She's a little less than two years older than me. Okay, so she would have been nine or ten when this when it started with you. And she was in another room okay. at that point. She had her own bedroom. So you said that you didn't really understand the impact until it stopped. What 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 started coming forward to you once he stopped? I became a food addict. I started eating, just compulsively eating all the time. By the time I got into fourth grade, I was a pudgy kid and then got bullied for that and bullied by my fourth grade teacher, who was just this horrible woman who would want to look in my lunch bag to see what I was bringing for lunch and would talk about it in front of the class. And it was like just one more really shameful way of being treated that I thought, well, apparently this is what I deserve. Back in the day when shaming was okay. Yeah, and when it was, you know, 
And I remember my sixth grade teacher, if we were caught chewing gum, he would put Ajax on the gum and then make you eat it and make you go back to chewing it. I mean, it, oh was, it was a whole different world. Then. I think that gets you four to six in the state pen now yeah. if you did something like that. When I think of the parents who are freaking out about how their kids are treated, I'm like, you don't know anything. Right. <laughs> anyway. So food became a... Food um, became my comfort and my way of just shoving down i think anytime i was feeling upset i would just go eat did you go ahead any any other kinds of behaviors that you look back on now and realize were generated by his behavior toward you i definitely i had a friend who i now that i look back on it probably was being molested in some way in her house she had like four older brothers and I don't know what was up with her dad or her mom. They were not a happy family by any means. And she was my best friend in elementary school. And she was an incredible bully. And she would bully the other kids and, you know, push them up against the fence. And I would be her friend and observe all of this. And I I never did anything to the other kids, but I think I thought I was getting some sort of... uh, uh, pleasure out of watching her be mean to those kids and I was I bullied my younger sister which to this day she won't let me forget and yeah I think I just became an angry uh, bullying unhappy miserable fat kid so no no anxiety no depression that you knew of at that time or or can remember it was kind of stuffing your feelings and then acting out was your way of the release. Looking back on it, I think I must have felt anxious and depressed, but, you know, you don't know those things when you're a kid, and certainly nobody was talking about anything like that when we were kids. So looking back on it, I think I was a really freaked out kid. What happened when you became a teenager? I was, my sister, my older sister acted out so much that she, she was, doing drugs and hitchhiking and putting herself in all kinds of danger. She'd disappear for days at a time. And and then my little sister sort of joined in when she was like 13. She, My sister said, beckoned her into the opium den, and she went. And I think I thought... Wait, you had an actual opium den? No, oh. she just, here, they're here, the drug world. Oh, okay, come gotcha, and, gotcha. Come and join me in the drug world. And I think I thought, I know I thought, I'm going to be the good kid. I'm going to get good grades. I had lots of things I was interested in. I played the piano. I loved music and singing. And I just had got, and I got good grades. And I'm like, I'm the good kid. Somebody is going to appreciate this. But of course, <laughs> if you're the good kid, nobody pays any attention to you because the other people are getting way more attention. So I just sort of, quietly by the time I got into high school was just doing my own thing. What was your relationship like with your stepfather and your mother at that point? I was very um, clingy with my mom. I remember as I was a kid and Dana said to me one time, well, she was like the only person in your family that you could sort of count on, even though we couldn't count on her at all. I always, I think of it, you know, when you take psych classes and they talk mm-hmm. about the wire monkey and then the monkey that's got terry cloth on it and the little monkeys go, they'll cling to whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're miserable and they're cold and they're starving and they're wet, they'll cling to the wire monkey. And I think that's was 
was pretty much what I did. I would got I would every time my mother went somewhere, I would say, "Can I go with you?" Um, I was just you know, and I was always her favorite. Were you frightened that the abuse would happen again? I don't recall being thinking it would happen again. You thought when it was over, it's over. Yeah, and I, I when I slowly realized it was over, it was like I lost this person who was paying attention to me, even though it was horrible attention, looking, of course, from an adult's point of view, and it was, uh, you know, but it was someone was, he loved me in this, you know, really sick way. He loved me. And always, I, you know, he was like, you're my Annie, and you're my, and he would lavish lots of attention on me in the daytime, and he would take me with him when we, you know, when we'd go on errands, and so I want to ask Dana, there's a couple of things that, that Ann has, has mentioned, including that of, of, um, of that feeling of, of being wanted mm-hmm. by, by the perpetrator, and also Ann finding some level of pleasure in, in the act that, that uh, was happening there. Is that common with Extremely. Most, yeah, and, and why is that? It, well, I mean... For, if you think about little babies, where do they take their hands the first opportunity? One's in the mouth and the other one's in the crotch. So right. we have nerve endings from the beginning of our life that are pleasurable. And um, as long as the person isn't, you know, being brutally uh, assaulted in some way, um, it does feel pleasurable for some kids. And they are so, so shamed and made to feel really disgusting and like there's something incredibly wrong with them because their body is responding in a way that they wish that it wouldn't. And it's also really confusing because you don't know anything about sex or, or any of what's happening. Um, and so some of it feels good. Some of it you can tell is really awful. Certainly the energy of a pedophile is incredibly poisonous and disgusting. But at the same time, if you're starving, you will eat dirty food if that's all that's available to you. And you'll actually um, crave it after a while because if you're that hungry... I mean, if you really want to hurt a person, abandon them and leave them without any kind of connection. And so under those circumstances, because you didn't have a mom in any emotional sense, mm-hmm. and there's nobody else in your life, really, no other relatives or anyone that um, was kind to you, this man paid attention to you. And so he was able to groom you into submission. And, and then he threatened you and made you feel horribly ashamed of yourself, which is all so, so common. And, and I've never met a person that uh, when they were abused as a child doesn't blame themselves and think that somehow they asked for it or caused it or did something uh, or they were just a bad person and that's why it happened. It's, it's almost humanly impossible to, as a kid, to blame the perpetrator. So, and you were, we're talking about your high school years. And obviously, at some point, you became interested in boys. No. No. Mm-mm. Okay. So I assumed <laughs> wrongly there, but so you you didn't have an interest as in in your more formable years through secondary education of 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 boys or what a relationship with a boy would be like or Mm-mm. no, I didn't. And, I um, and do you know why that was or I think that subconsciously I did not want any man getting close to me, and I'm sure. I don't know exactly how I did it, but I'm sure I gave out plenty of signals saying, stay away from me. And my, I loved high school. I was really happy in high school. 
I was really into theater and music and singing and musicals and all that kind of stuff. And those are where the homosexual kids hang out. Mm -hmm. So all my best friends were gay. Although at the time we weren't putting a name to it and we weren't talking about it. But then by the time I was in college, I was like, oh yeah, they're all gay. But they were my best friends and I loved them. And I had my one friend, Mark, who was one of my dearest friends who died of AIDS. Um, he, I had the biggest crush on him and I would hang around with him and we all, you know, the, the boy that I actually liked who took me to the senior prom, he was gay. I didn't know it at the time. You just didn't feel the sexual energy or yeah. sexual connection with these people. And nothing was, I mean, I was really attracted to him and looking back on it, I know my stepfather was very sexually confused, obviously. He did have some sort of homosexual tendencies and I think in my head, first of all, I didn't want to be around straight guys. And second of all, it all felt familiar and comfortable to me to be around, you know. You know, Kim, it's extremely common to lose any kind of neutrality when you become a sexual person or if you've been sexually abused as a kid. So I would say 99% of the time it either causes you to become hyper or hyposexual. And and is just describing that she became... The hypo okay. version of it. Uh huh. Yeah. As opposed to maybe your sister, who, you know, was incredibly promiscuous and um, tried to come to terms with her abuse in, a, in the opposite way. But it takes neutrality away from pretty much everyone. So you talked about the, the did you talk about trying drugs during your teenage years or? I think I smoked weed one time my senior year. With my girlfriend who had this joint that was so old that nothing <laughs> happened. And I remember thinking, I was waiting for something yeah, right. to happen and nothing happened. Everybody like, talks so great about all this. there's something that, wrong with this. I don't get like, it. Yeah. Uh. Um, I didn't do drugs in high school at all. I smoked some weed in college, but that was about it. And what was college like for you? College was pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, in high school, I started thinking, well... The boys don't like me, so there must be something wrong with me, which was like the common theme. There's always something wrong with you. Um, but high school, you could still be a virgin and not, you know, you, a lot of kids weren't, but if you were, you know, it was... The pressure was okay. wasn't as great. No. But by college, you know, I joined a sorority. And my mother forced me. She drove me out there, and I was sobbing <laughs> hysterically, and she forced me to go through Rush and forced me to pledge a sorority. Um I got into UCLA and USC and she wouldn't let me go. She was like, you can't leave Santa Barbara. I'm not going to pay for anything. So I stayed in Santa Barbara and went to UCSB. Is there a reason your mom didn't want you to leave home? I think she didn't want me to leave home ever. Okay. I think she thought that I was going to be the one who would never marry, who would never have kids and who would take care of her. And, And she was still married to your stepdad at that time? They were married till I was 20. Okay. And then finally... He got so, I mean, the two of them were nuts, but he got so nuts that they finally, she finally divorced him. So was your mom looking at you instead of a daughter as more of a partner in life? Yeah. Then? Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, she also did everything she could to make you feel bad about yourself so you wouldn't leave her. Yeah, exactly. She was incredibly cruel and really disrespectful all the time. And all the things that I loved to do, um, she was was never even remotely encouraging or, you know, 
<laughs> when my daughter was at San Marcos, which was the, you know, we both went to the same high school, and she has a beautiful voice and did musicals. And I remember going to every single performance mm-hmm. and thinking, first of all, I loved it. And second of all, that's what parents are that's supposed to parents do. That's what parents do. And my mother would begrudgingly go to one show and would never say a single, I mean, she got shamed into going to a show. She never wanted to go. And then at the end, she was she would get mad, you know, if there was any expectation of her being any kind of a parent at all, she just would get mad. The manipulation of trying to control the situation or hold her down? Well, I, I, my experience of Anne's mom was that she was an incredibly narcissistic, very, very personality disordered woman. And that she had absolutely no awareness of anybody but herself. And was incredibly self-centered and used Anne basically uh, as a as an object to take, you know, to be her, to accompany her through life. And I just remember some of the things that she would say to you and the way she treated you was so, oh my God, it was just astoundingly cruel and uh, disrespectful. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for me to come here with her and just really see, you know, that this was this person who just, all she cared about was herself. So college then became difficult. Um, I had gone from being a really good student and really liking school to being a bad student and hating school. I felt so uncomfortable and so out of place. I was still struggling with my weight, and I was convinced that that was the reason that no boys ever paid attention to me, when I don't think that was the reason. There were plenty of kids who were chubby and had boyfriends and all that. And I always thought, well, there's something wrong with me, you know, that this person has a boyfriend and, and I, you know, still had no boyfriend, was not having sex. And then you start to feel really out of place. Do you, did you, do you think at that point you had any memory of what happened to you as a kid or was it all mm-hmm. blocked out at that it's point? It's all blocked out. Cause that's important for people to understand is that eventually all of it went away in your conscious memory. Yeah. Went completely away. I think I started just putting it in drawers after my stepfather told me I was a terrible, horrible person. I was like, this is too scary. I can't deal with this. And I just. Well, that was really the first assault on your self-esteem, too, probably that you really remember, right? In that way? Um, When he was telling you you're a horrible person and. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I don't think our self-esteems in my house were particularly championed at any point in our lives <laughs> but yeah that was like a big one so like dana was saying you were miserable in college mm-hmm. at least in in the get-go of i your- just couldn't figure out how to navigate the world and how to be okay and i just got more and more depressed and more and more anxious i remember i finally went to the counseling center at UCSB and there were just a bunch of students working there and they could have cared less about me or you know and I don't think I knew how to communicate and I just felt so like oh well this isn't gonna help and never went back a psychology student wasn't who you were seeking out to talk to yeah they you know they didn't know what they were doing they were kids too right did you graduate from UCSB finally Mm -hmm. yeah and then what what happened in your life Let's see. I graduated. I was 22. I moved back home briefly. My mother had decided that 
she needed to move out of Santa Barbara. We had, she had terrible allergies and she was a dreadful hypochondriac and was always sick and always terrified of getting sick. If we ever got sick, she would like put us away, shut the door. I'm not going to go near you for a week, you know, because she was so afraid of catching something. She knew the COVID quarantine before COVID. Was oh my God. Thing. So many times I've thought, thank God she died before that. Cause she would never have made it. Um, but where was I going with this? Well, she moved to Los Angeles. Right? Oh yeah. We, she lived in Palm. She liked Palm Springs and we went there a lot growing up because she decided the desert was better for her than Santa Barbara. And we moved there when I was 14 and I spent a year going to a, what was then junior high was seven through nine. And that was terrifying and horrible experience, but she was happy because she was doing what she needed to do. Um, my older sister at that point went to a boarding school where she did, I mean, it was just like this hippie conclave where they were just constantly doing drugs and she had a nervous breakdown and came home and just broke down and hid in her bedroom for months. Um, so at 22, my mom decided she was going to put the house up for rent and she was going to move to Newport Beach and we all had to get out and figure out what to do with ourselves. So one of my really good girlfriends, we're still really good friends, she said, well, why don't you come move to Hermosa Beach with me and get a job and she was going to law school and the other guy was going to get his MBA. And so I did that. But again, I just felt something was just terribly wrong all the time. So you, you made it through college without having a boyfriend or an intimate relationship. Yep. You moved out of town, moved with some friends, had what you thought was a career job or just, no, with, just really. was working was just, to make ends meet well i uh-huh. have always loved fashion and i sewed since i was eight years old made all my own clothes made clothes for my sisters um so when i got down to armosa i went to work for a, a company that was a fabric company and a design company and then there was a retail next door so we i worked in all those got paid nothing but i really i felt at home and it's gonna it say it sound women. like a perfect job for you Yeah, in some ways it was. I got, you know, not paid anything. It was definitely not a career choice. But, um, and I was with women. I always would seek out situations where I didn't have to be around men. And how did you end up back in Santa Barbara then? Oh, after a couple, three years down there, my mother decided she wanted to put the house up for sale. She wasn't going to come back, and she had turned 55, and she was going to get the tax right off. And So she said, will you go home, go back and live in the house, and take care of it and deal with the real estate agent? So I said, okay. It's not like I was really happy in L.A. And Wendy, my friend, had finished law school. and you know, So I moved back to Santa Barbara, moved back into my house I grew up in, um, which, by the way, is around the corner from where Kim grew up. Um, <laughs> small town. Small town. Small, weird place we grew up in. And I lived there alone for several months. And I remember being really, really scared and thinking, I think because going back to my old bedroom, I, I, got, I immediately got a dog, which helped a lot. <laughs> and I love dogs. I've always... And eventually... A friend of mine moved in with her little girl, and 
we were all working and another friend moved in and then another friend moved in and then my sister came back, my little sister. And eventually it was, you know, and it took years to sell that place. It took like two, three years to sell it. I think it was a bad economy at that point. So, and that was okay. It was, you know. So then, so you were happy back then? I, I You said that you were kind of weirded out moving back to the house. I wouldn't say I was happy, but it was like it was okay. You know, I, li- I was glad kind of to be back in but, Santa Barbara. But you had friends, you had your sister yeah. back home and, yeah. and so on. And, and, and so then the house sells, what happens then? The house sold. At that point, I was teaching aerobic dancing and I was working in a clothing retail place doing windows and alterations and stuff and just as the house sold the real estate agent said there's a guest cottage up the street on Kierba and if you want it you can have it for 800 bucks a month and my friend Jennifer and I were like great we'll take it so we lived there for several years and still no intimate relationships in your life and how, how old are you at this point now 20 Five maybe, 20, okay. 25. But then something big happened. Um, my little sister went to South America and she bought, she was down there having a good time, visiting friends, traveling around. At some point she bought cocaine and she sent it back to my house thinking she would sell it when she got on. But I mean, it was a teeny tiny little amount. It was like nothing. But of course, if you put it in the mail, yeah, <laughs> you're going to get caught. They have drug sniffing dogs yeah. at the Postal Service. So they, of course, stopped it at wherever the point of port was, and they followed it up to our house as it made its way through the postal system. And I was at work, and my, and my friend Jennifer, they brought it to the door, and they said, you have to sign for it because they can't break into your house unless you... If she had just said, no, don't know what that is, take it back, that would have been the end of it. Right. But she didn't know what was going on. She was like, okay, and signed for it, and then she went to work. By the time I got home, the house was full of DEA agents. They had broken the door in. They had wrecked the house. They had emptied every drawer. They, you know... and. Essentially, they knew that there was not much there, but they were like that they got out of town for the day and they got to go through girls' underwear. They're gonna prove a. They're gonna prove a point. <laughs> yeah, and they were just having a good time. To them, it was meaningless, really. Um, so I got home and my dog was locked up and leaping up and down. A car pulled in right behind me in the driveway, so I couldn't leave. I sat there for a while, just not knowing what was going on. And then they came out, opened the garage, took me in. They had guns and tear gas and all of this stuff. It was so stupid. And, and your sister was still in South America. She at was this still point. in South America. Okay. And it was really obvious that it was her because I had packages that she had sent me of clothes she wasn't using and stuff like that. And it was in the closet and it said, you know, her name and Bolivia on it. So I was like, duh. <laughs> um, but that was a big wake up thing for me because it was me alone in the house with a whole bunch of men doing everything that just these very low level men who were so but men with authority and with guns yes and they were scary Mm -hmm. and i was didn't know what was going on and i would say i think i should get a lawyer and they go no no you don't need a lawyer i didn't know better it the whole day was really traumatizing but i at the end of it by the time everything got settled out my sister got a lawyer she got off um 
I realized that if I could get through that, I needed to go be in an environment where there were the male men were in the workplace. <laughs> so I got a job. So that, that was, was that that incident was incident was a, an epiphany for you. Huge okay. turning point. So I started applying for jobs like office jobs, and the first job I got <laughs> was in a little advertising agency. Um, I was sort of the office manager person and there was a guy there who was German who I really liked and I sort of had a crush on him and I was like hmm something's happening here and then the man who became my husband started going after me and I was so flattered and I was so like the first time in my life that a man had actually been interested in me that I remember you know or that I was paying attention to a heterosexual man at that time, right? You know, he's uh, a little, if him, you know, he's betwixt in between. Okay. So he sort of fit. He was, he's a lot like my, a, a combination of my stepfather and my mother. Okay. He's rather narcissistic and he's very, I think I said to Dana one time um, that if in a perfect world where he didn't grow up in a conservative, poor Catholic family and in the fifties, I think he would probably be, because he can't do that. But but like we talk about on the show often, you followed a familiar pattern, mm-hmm. right? Which was which felt very common to you. Yeah, and I, I was like, oh, this is the man. I know this for feeling, me. right? Yeah, because you know, he's this is so comfortable and it's perfect. And How long were you with him before you guys got married? I didn't get married till I was thirty four, so. Six years, probably. So it was a while. Yeah, it was a while. Um, yeah. And, and so how how did the the pursuing and, and the ultimate romance go? I mean, did it take you a while to kind of dip your toe into it and get used to it? Or were you ready by that time to, to fully embrace it? I think I was ready. Um, he was relentless in his pursuit of me which I thought was just so flattering and he was married. And so I thought nothing will ever happen. You know, he's married. This is just this crush that I can have and this will be so much fun. And then he started really going after me. So you had that arm's length security initially Mm -hmm. with it. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, this is just an an office flirtation. This is nothing more than Right. He's got a wife, so I don't have to worry about it. He's got a wife and kids and, you know, it's safe. And then his his wife went out of town for a couple of weeks and then he started the full court press to use your sports analogies. And he invited me out to dinner and I went with him and then I went back to his house with him. And that was the first time I ever had a sexual experience. And I was 27, probably 26, 27. And, and how was that sexual experience for you? I mean, was it, was it familiar in terms of what you had experienced with your stepdad? Was it horrific? Was That's it pleasurable? A, a, no, it was not pleasurable at all. It turned out I had a lot of scar tissue that I wasn't really aware of. And I had never been to a gynecologist. I had never, you know, I was not going to do anything like that. And it was incredibly painful. And there was a lot of blood. It was, you know, really kind of awful. And... But I was like, well, I guess I 
finally sort of got that out of the way. And I really loved him and I thought he loved me and, you know, et cetera. And so you checked a few boxes with that. Then. Yeah, I, I guess I did. At uh-huh. the time, I don't, don't know if I thought about it that way, but it was like, well, I guess I'm not going to die a virgin. So, you know. Um, right. And you, and you felt he cared for you at that moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, being seduced by a narcissist is like no other seduction. Exactly. And, you know. I'm sure, I think my stepfather was incredibly narcissistic and God knows my mother was. And, you know, that was, I was used to that. I was, that's what people are like. So did the, the, the sexual affair continue on then for yeah, a period of time? We had an affair for a while. Um, eventually, I can't remember, but he either told his wife or, yeah, I think he told her. And she, of course, reasonably went nuts and eventually they, then we didn't see each other for a long time. I wasn't working with him anymore. I, so I left. And let me ask you a question. Were you in love with him or what you thought was love yes, at that point with him? Definitely. Okay. And, and so when you didn't see him for a while, it must have been heartbreaking for you. It was kind of awful. And I, he definitely is the person that I became thoroughly addicted to. I'm still kind of addicted to him. And... It, but it, the, it also felt like, well, this is really wrong, and you have broken up a family, and you're a terrible person, and I just felt like a piece of shit. And it, it is kind of amazing how people can become drugs, right? Yeah, in that he way, was, he was definitely my drug. Um, so, and at that point, I was feeling really good about myself, and I was exercising, and I was teaching dance classes, and I was, you know, so it worked for you in a, in a way, right? Yeah, in that way, yeah. And so, so he exited the picture for a period of time and then apparently he came back in. Yeah, then he got he separated from his wife and eventually they got divorced and then eventually I moved in with him and you know, but he was I think he went to see some therapist it wasn't and he he was telling the guy, you know, I have to be with her, I have to call her or something and he said the guy yelled at him and said, "Leave her alone." So it was. <laughs> at, least he, at least he got some good advice. He wasn't going to listen to though. <laughs> he didn't listen to it, but it was good advice for you. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't see him for a while, and I just remember being miserable and missing him and feeling sort of ill with you know sort of lovesick and you know. So, but so he eventually so he came back to you. He divorced his wife. He came back to you guys. Became a couple at that we point. We became or? a couple. Eventually, I moved in with him, and. At one point, he, before we were married, and he started getting really not very nice, and he was being very critical, and he was just behaving badly. And I was very confused. I couldn't figure out why he was doing this. I think he was, he was so, I think he was very freaked out by losing his marriage. He'd been married since he was 21, and um, he and he, I think he's just taking it out on me. And then that is also, I came to find his. And was he sharing kids. custody of, you said there was children involved. Was he sharing custody of the kids at that point? Not really. The okay. two, two of them were older Okay. and on their own. And the youngest, um, he didn't really see that much of him. Uh, he never had really custody of him. He would come visit sometimes, but, you know. And he was horribly damaged by all of that and his dad. And I don't know how his mom fit into all of that. But And how soon 
in moving in with him, did the negative behavior begin? Pretty soon. And I finally said to him, I said, one day I we talk, were talking, I said, you can't keep doing this. I can't deal with this anymore. I don't understand why you're talking to me this way. And this has got to stop or I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And he, he stopped long enough for us to get married. And, you know, I think he, you know, in, even though he is not the nicest person in the world, he was very afraid of losing me. So you hadn't started therapy at that point Mm -hmm. or been to a therapist, but you had... No, that's not true. I had seen a therapist when he and I were seeing each other, and I think I told him a little bit about my childhood, and he said, you need to go see a therapist, and he found this woman for me who was really nice. I liked her. And then he saw Dana um, for a little while when he was going through his divorce and me and, you know, having his issues... And then when, after our daughter was born, things got really bad because suddenly there was somebody in the house wanting his, my attention and he didn't know how to deal with that. Well, the only reason I asked that question is because you stood up for yourself. You, yeah. You knew that. Interestingly. That, yeah. You knew that behavior was wrong. Yeah. You knew how you were feeling from it and you told him what it was and to stop and and he did eventually, like you said, for you guys to be able to get married. Yeah. He can be nice when he feels like it has to be. Yeah. So, so it worked for the period of time. And then, so how quickly after you guys got married, did you have your child? Well, I told him I wouldn't marry him unless he would, uh, he wanted to have a child with me. And I absolutely drew that line and said, you know, we went to Europe at one point and he said, I'm not going to have any more children. And I started crying and we got back from Europe and I said, and I, I laughed. I didn't see him for a long time. Um, so we got married when I we was 34, and Marielle was born when I was 37, so three years. Okay. And he had to have a vasectomy reversal. It was kind of a big deal, but it all worked out. And, and, and so you, you, I think you had, before we came back to that, you said that as soon as you had a kid, everything went to shit or yeah. quote unquote, maybe. Yeah. Okay. He just did not want to share me with anyone. And the nastier he got, the more I just paid attention to her and she was my whole world. And I didn't really, I didn't have a good relationship with him. So I just poured everything I had into her and he got more and more freaked out. I did leave him for a month. I took her and I went and lived with my sister for a month. And I remember Dana saying to me when I first started seeing him, he said, why'd you go back? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I think I just thought, I don't know how to support myself and take care of this child. And So so at, at what point did you decide that you needed to see somebody that, that maybe things weren't going as you had planned in life or you weren't feeling certain things that you thought you should be feeling or had negative ideas? When, when did I that... did not make that decision at oh, okay. all. Um Michael had seen Dana for a little while, and then when our marriage was just really bad, and I was really miserable, and you know neither one of us was part. Of, his business was falling apart. He, everything was falling apart, and he said to me, and he said, "Well, you should go see Dana. You need to go see somebody because you had this, you know, unfortunate childhood, and you need to go talk to somebody." And I was like, "Okay." So I 
we went, the two of us, one time. So if he had any good advice, that was good advice. Huh? I said if he had any good advice, that was good advice to get you into yeah, therapy at least. Yeah, but he wanted it to be my problem. But your that problem. That was why right. he wanted me to go. It's like, I'm wonderful and I'm the greatest husband ever lived and you are the problem. What do they call that? The identified patient or yes. something? Yes, yeah. Um, and I, but I didn't know this at the time. And so I went and we went together. And then he said to Dana, without my knowing it, he said, my wife is incredibly screwed up because of her childhood and she needs to come back and see you to talk about this. But he didn't say that to me. So then we had an appointment and I go see Dana thinking we're going to talk about my terrible marriage. And Dana's like, hmm, I thought we we're here to talk about your childhood and your stepfather. And I just was livid. And I jumped to my feet and I walked out the door and I think I probably slammed the door behind me and said, I'm never coming back here. And that was, I don't know what you were thinking. It was, you're probably not the first person that's done that. I just, I was so mad at my husband. I was mad. I felt like I'd been tricked into it. I thought Dana was part of the, the subterfuge and, you know, he wasn't. He just, you know. And then I think then I started thinking, I think I need to go back because I really do need to figure out this, figure this out. I need to figure out why my marriage is such a mess and why everything's going wrong. And so I came back and 30 years later, here we are. <laughs> so obviously that we were talking about this before we started recording that uh, the journey of healing doesn't have a finish line. Eventually it gets you around a corner to like you were talking about to where you can find some contentness and you have some tools in your toolbox and you can carry on with life and get up in the morning and have a relatively good life. Um, there was a lot to overcome when you first stepped into the office, right? Like you had said before, you came in under false pretenses, right? That it was going to be talking about marriage therapy and it wasn't going to talk about the abuse in my childhood. Um, so there's a lot to unravel mm -hmm. there. Um, and so um, kind of take us through some of the highlights of, of kind of your therapy points and, and where you kind of realized certain things in your life or certain things about you or, or, or this is not who I really am and, and where the trajectory kind of changed for you and how you lived your life. If you can find those milestones thinking back. One of the things back up for a second, when I was living in LA, I don't know why my mother got it into her head that I was, you know, really suffering. And that she said, there's this women's group that was like halfway between Hermosa and Newport Beach. And they dealt a lot with just women's issues and sexual abuse and stuff like that. And so we went to, I would meet her once a week and we would go to this. And we went, we I think we did it for six or seven weeks. I did learn a bit about my mother in that, in those. And then we would go to dinner afterwards. And at, towards the end of the cycle of these meetings, we went to dinner and my mother said to me that my older sister had said to my mother that my stepfather was abusing her. And, um, and suddenly it was like, you know, on get smart where the big doors would, clang open and shut it was like that it was like a big door just opened and I started remembering what had happened to me for the first time that you know since I was a kid and I said oh my god you know 
that happened to me too, but I didn't remember the particulars at that point. I just knew. Um, and I started remembering that conversation with him where I had told him, but really I didn't have a lot of distinct memories and it wasn't until I came to see Dana and he worked with hypnosis and stuff that I started really going, Oh my God, there was a lot more to this than, you know, than I thought. Tons. Yeah. Yeah. It was horrific. I, I think I sort of remembered the oral sex, but it was like I could only remember the part of it that I thought, oh, well, this, you know, wasn't so bad, or I was a participant, or it felt good, or, you know, that was all I would let myself remember. And it took a while to get at everything. But you had the courage to hang in there. Yeah, I. it didn't feel courageous at the time. No. No, it, it kind of still doesn't. It felt more like it was time, and I really liked you. I felt so comfortable finally in your office, and I knew that you liked me, and you didn't think I was a horrible person, and it just was the perfect scenario for it all to take place. And you were very, you're so skilled at not pushing someone too far when they're not ready, and knowing how to say it in a in a calm way. I had seen one therapist because my older sister had said, as a family, we're going. And I, this woman was horrible. And at one point she said to me, um, you knew there was something wrong. You knew that that was a bad thing and you were doing a bad thing. And I just freaked out and felt terrible and the shaming came back into fashion the again shaming came back from the therapist and i said i'm never coming back here again and she freaked out and started calling me all the time and i think she knew she had maybe blown it but it was nice to be someplace with you know where there was no shaming there was no you know did you eventually have any physical symptoms that came from your trauma uh, in, in terms of ever being treated for depression or anxiety or? I definitely was suffering from depression and anxiety. And I finally got some antidepressants from a PA that I was seeing. And it made a big difference. I felt so much better within like five weeks. I felt like a whole new person. So, yeah. I had back trouble, which I think was related to... You know, just stress, stress and, you know, which now is gone. Um, yeah. So go- going back to that question of kind of the therapy milestones for you, uh, eventually you started understanding what, what happened to you. Mm-hmm. You understand it. You probably understood who you were married to, mm-hmm. understood who your mom was, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, at that point. And I, I'm guessing the marriage didn't survive. We're still, we never got divorced. You never got divorced, okay. And I developed a pretty serious alcohol problem. Certainly by the time I was in my 40s, it was pretty bad. Um, and, and, and I'm going to assume again, the alcohol was to kind of treat the symptoms, the, the pain and the... Yeah. Right, okay. Because I n- never had a problem with alcohol ever until I met Michael. And then we would start drinking wine at lunch, and but I never and I never thought that it was an issue. And then it just got worse. And we separated for a couple of times. The first time for like three, four years, and then when 
three or four years later, we separated again for several years. Um, but after I had to, I lost everything, lost my house, didn't have any money left, and went to had to go to rehab. And at that point, Michael was being super helpful and helping to pay for stuff and et cetera. And then COVID hit, and between one thing and another, I moved back in with him. So you so you went to an inpatient yeah. program, and, and that worked for you, sort of. So okay, not definitively, but sort of. It was it was a big wake up call, but it really felt like this wasn't my idea. It was like I got myself into this place where I had to do something, but I felt like I just I hated it there. The woman who ran the place was completely insane, um, and I have relapsed several times since I left. I'm sober now. Um, Did you consider yourself an alcoholic? Yeah, by the time I went to this rehab casa, I definitely was <laughs> most definitely an alcoholic. So I, I, one of the things I think Dana started the, the podcast with, and we were talking about this, this healing journey. Mm-hmm. And I think you and Dana both confirmed the kind of time frame that, that you've known each other in terms of whether it was marital therapy or was it getting you to unwind and, and doing hypnotherapy from the, the, this trauma. And that's been this 30 year odyssey mm-hmm. to do that. I think the important question is, do, do you think now you've turned a corner? It feels like it. Yeah. It feels like I don't, I'm not using alcohol to uh, not deal with stuff, you know, at least for the last several months. Um, I have sort of an understanding with, my husband now we are really just roommates we are not um there isn't any romance in our relationship at all there's no sex there's you know which i think is <laughs> must be kind of the way i like it um you know one of the things that i wanted to mention is that um always in the past when you and i talked and i tried to encourage you to share your story with other people it, it turned out very badly a number of times because people couldn't hear. Mm-hmm. They were too scared by what you had to say. Or just grossed out. Or or, or would just sort of shut down because of their own mm-hmm. pain. And the difference now is that you're talking about it, and it seems like you're talking about it with very little fear. Yeah, strangely, I feel fine. Which is remarkable, and that is a, that's very much telling in, in terms of being able to neutralize trauma. You can't make it as though it never existed. Mm-hmm. But the whole goal is to get to a point where you can talk about it without being triggered on a deep emotional level in a negative way. But I have also, I feel, you know, so comfortable with the two of you. And I know a little bit about what you went through. And I know what you went through. And so I know that when I come in here and talk about this, neither one of you is going to go, oh, my God. Um, but I still am. I feel like I have to be careful who I talk to about anything like this because people they get really quiet which means and yeah people are still very shocked I mean there there was one time when I was at rehab that we all had all of us had to take a turn sitting down and talking about what brought us to this point and what was our what has our had our life been like and you know I talked about it as best I could, but the room was just, you could hear a pin drop. 
and I felt so self-conscious and it was not, you know, in the end, I think it was a good thing to do and it was probably good for all of them. Um, one girl started sobbing hysterically and had to leave the room. I never did find out exactly what happened to her that led her to that, to that place. Um, we had counselors that we saw and my counselor was a really nice woman, not super complicated competent but nice person and she said to me oh my god this is all anybody can talk about and everybody comes to their session and wants to talk about you and what you said so it got through to people even though they were freaked out Uh, i don't want to speak for kim but uh certainly i'm incredibly proud of you for being for having the courage really to come here and talk about what happened to you you know what you've been through and all your struggles and and not to sugarcoat it in, in any way You've been incredibly honest about how you feel and the shame and all, you know, it's a, it's remarkable actually. Thank yeah. You. You're a hero, Ann. Um, but, <laughs> but before I, before we wrap up this hour, I have a, I have a couple of other questions and, I, and I'm sure people are wondering as well. Um, your mom's still not around. No, she died in 2008. Okay. And stepdad. He died. Oh, he lived a long time. He lived to be 96. Okay. And so the, the question that's always brought up to me, is did you make peace with them before they died? And, and, and I'm going to answer it for myself is, I think the question is, did I want to make peace with them before they passed? Yeah. Um, and so I guess I'll throw the question out to you. Did you feel, one, that you needed to do that? And, and if not, why? I didn't want to make peace with my stepfather. I wanted to tell him what I remembered and exactly what happened. I wrote him a long letter. I confronted him in person a couple of times. Um. I didn't want to make peace with him. I didn't care how he felt or what happened to him. Probably the last time I ever really saw him was years ago. He was in, he had had a heart attack and he was in a rehab place near Cottage Hospital. And my girlfriend was worked doing speech pathology there. And he was there and she called me and she said, you're never going to guess who's in this place and that I'm having to deal with. And I said, who? And she goes, your stepfather. I said, if you can I come down and talk to him and will you stay there Mm -hmm. with me? And she said, of course I will. And because she had been through her stuff. And so I told him exactly what I thought of him and what he had done. And he looked scared, but he also was not all there anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, was getting old. But obviously there enough to know who you were and what what you were saying. And that was the first thing I said, I was standing over him and I said, do you know who I am? And he goes, you're my Annie. I got oh. there's steam coming out. Yeah, of my ears. it takes you back to when you're eight years old again. Yeah, I'm sure. And I just let him have it, and he didn't know what to do. He, he just lay there, and then I said bye, and that's the last time I ever saw him or talked to him. Did you feel that there was some catharsis in that for you? To I do think that? so. Not as much as I would have liked, but yeah, there was some. And how about your mom? My mother, interestingly enough, I got. I finally, at one point, probably a year and a half before she died so mad at her and I just couldn't talk to her or go visit her or be around her I was just furious because I felt like I had been pretending for so many years that everything was fine because that was what we how we grew up Mm -hmm. no matter how you're feeling no matter what happened you are fine we have this nice house you have a nice life you are fine and I finally had enough and we went to see a EM, EMT person. Oh, EMDR? EMDR, thank you. Yeah. And my little sister was really upset that 
my mother and I weren't talking or that I was so mad at her. And she said, let's all go to this therapist. And so we went and I said to him, I can't, I said to my mother in front of him, I said, I can't keep pretending anymore. It is what it is. And I'm not going to pretend that what you did was right and that you're a good mother. I'm just not going to do that anymore. And she, of course, the, the guy said to her, you know, did you hear this? And did you hear what she said? And my mother whipped out her checkbook, which was her favorite thing to do, and said, well, I'm happy to continue paying for you to see this person because you need, you know, like Michael, it's the same old story. And so I rarely talked to her or saw her much after that. And then the following Christmas, we all got together, Christmas Day, and I was still obviously not happy with my mother, and we were sitting around my little sister's apartment, We'd had dinner, and we're talking, and I turned to my mother, and I said, so, Mom, who was that family that you sent Connie to go live with? Because when we were kids, my mother didn't want to deal with Connie and Connie's issues, and Connie has a lot of problems, and she sent her to live with another family, and so she just disappeared. One day she was there, the next day she wasn't there. And I definitely figured out that she was with another family, that they were taking her to school, that, you know. And she stayed and lived with them until we moved to Santa Barbara, and then she brought her back. And, and you probably knew why. I didn't at the time. I mean, now. But, but after talking to your mom or figuring oh, that out. Oh, I had out, figured yeah. it out oh, by yeah. then. Yeah. And I was just trying to fuck with her. I just said, you know, so mom. And she went white as a sheet. And she said, how can you remember that? And I looked at her and I said, Mom, I remember everything. And she then started getting sick. And by the following April, she had died. Was that a certain validation that you needed for her to kind of cop to it? Yeah. As part of your your healing? That was an epiphany. Yeah. When it just so took her by surprise that she couldn't deny it or she just was like oh my god you know it was deer in the headlights and I was I felt so self-satisfied I was like oh I really shook this woman up did you ever talk to her about the babysitter that you brought in when you were a little kid who starved you and beat you I talked to her about it yeah we had this horrible nanny person this giant woman who beat the living daylights out of myself and my older sister my little sister wasn't born yet and I had talked to her about it but I'd never done it in a way that like I need you to feel bad about this that you were such a terrible parent um and she she had some lip service like oh I'm so sorry I ever she said I I should never have done that and that was a terrible thing and but she knew what was happening and my older sister had said to her at one point you know Laura is and Connie was little when she said this she said Laura is beating us and we're gonna And I thought, oh, we're going to die. I thought this woman was going to kill us. And I was with my sister and my mother. We were all holding hands, walking down some stairs. And I thought, oh, my God, we're saved. I'm not going to die. And my mother said, that would never happen. She would never do anything like Mm. that. I was like, oh, we're doomed. So last question before we wrap up here. Okay. If somebody listening to us has suffered through this but hasn't, gotten help yet 
or is trying to get help, what, what words of advice would you give that person? I think, and I definitely clued into this when I started seeing Dana, um, I think it's just never too late. You know, you said you had people who would come see you and they were in their 70s and they were finally saying, oh my God, I guess I have to deal with this. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be 70 and starting to confront this. I, you know, I would rather do it now. Even though I did lots of things to slow my progress down. I think the drinking was definitely slowed me down. But I was determined to hang in there. I think those are wise words that it is never it is never, <laughs> it's too, never late, too late right uh, again we're not on somebody else's path we're yeah. on our own path and if it takes you a little longer to get there as long as you get there then so be it and I know with me I was just continually taking it out on myself just continually and I think at some point self-preservation was like don't you just can't keep doing this well it's up to us on the, on the life we want to lead and yeah. if you want to keep leading that life of pain and misery, then who else is to say that you shouldn't do that? But uh, but we're trying to say that... Me. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> we're, we're sitting here with the podcast trying to say, you don't have to do that. That's yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, based on your situation, if you could find some peace as a result of what happened to you, I would say that anybody could. Yeah, yeah Because that's what happened true. to you is so far beyond the pale of most of what anybody has ever experienced as a child. And here you are, you know, you and I are the same age, I think, or close. Yeah, we're a year apart. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, you're still doing the best you can. And I think that's incredibly heroic, even though you don't see yourself as a hero. Oh, thank you. You've always been one of my heroes, one of my therapy heroes, because you never gave up. Well, you're going to be a hero to somebody on this podcast because they're going to hear your story and resonate and, and do something about it. So, Anne, thanks for being here. Thanks for being vulnerable. You're welcome. Transparent. Um, it's really appreciated. And, yeah. and I wish you all the best going forward. Thank you. Yeah. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.